This episode of Cocaine and Rhinestones touches on a topic that will be upsetting for some listeners. If abortion is a particularly sensitive subject for you, I suggest going to cocaineandrhinestones.com. Every episode of the podcast has a companion blog post with a transcript you can read to preview the episode. California Coastal Records Project is an attempt to acquire and maintain up-to-date photographs of the entire California coastline. They began doing this in 1997, before we had things like Google Earth. It's a husband and wife team. She flies a helicopter and he takes the pictures. The thing about the California coast is a whole lot of rich and famous people own houses on it. Beachfront property. In 2002, one of those people was Barbara Streisand. In 2003, she sued the project. One of the pictures on their website had her house in it. The picture isn't some paparazzi close-up on her backyard. They didn't add an arrow pointing to her home with text saying, Babs lives here. It's a picture of a beach with some big houses in the background. I know this because I've seen the picture. You can go see the picture too on the California Coastal Records Project website. Barbara Streisand's lawsuit was dismissed by the state of California. She had to pay over $150,000 to cover the project's legal fees. But here's the real kicker. When the suit was filed, the offending photograph had only been downloaded six times. And two of those were from Streisand's own attorneys. The publicity from the lawsuit sent nearly half a million people to the website within one month. That picture has now surely been seen millions of times more than it would have been if Streisand hadn't filed her lawsuit. Her effort to hide a thing from the world caused many more people to see that thing than if she'd ignored the thing. She accomplished the opposite of her goal so successfully that today we call this phenomenon the Streisand Effect, though you can find examples of it that predate the Streisand case. Like Loretta Lynn's 1975 hit song, The Pill. You and me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. Loretta is no stranger to controversy. Several of her singles had people riled up when they were released, and the pill wasn't the first. But the pill was released 15 years after birth control pills were introduced to the United States. So what was it specifically that radio programmers found unacceptable in this song? Why was the pill banned? And how did banning the pill help it become Loretta Lynn's best-selling single at that point in her discography? You're listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones, the podcast about 20th century country music and the lives of those who gave it to us. My name is Tyler Mahan Co. I've heard these stories my whole life. As far as I can tell, here's the truth about this one. A lot of songs have full lives of their own. It would take too much time to really get into those songs in the middle of regular shows about the artist. So I'm giving songs like this an episode all to themselves. This is a song episode, and that's why we won't spend very much time on Loretta Lynn's personal history today. She wrote a great autobiography called Coal Miner's Daughter that's as close to the truth as anyone will ever get, even if she did use it to shave three years off her real age. Most of you have seen the movie based on the book. 
The cool thing about Loretta's music is that you really don't have to go read that book or see that movie to know her background. It's all in the songs. Well, I was born to call miner's daughter In a cabin on a hill in butcher holler The lyrics of Coal Miner's Daughter tell you almost everything you need to know. She was born a coal miner's daughter, in a cabin, on a hill, in Butcher Holler, Kentucky. Picture the kind of place that would be named Butcher Holler, Kentucky. It was precisely like that. She married young, moved to the other side of the country, and started having kids. Lots of them. Her husband heard her singing one day, thought she sounded pretty damn good, so he bought her a guitar and pushed her towards music. The rest is history that most of you already know. So, let's learn about birth control pills. To understand the atmosphere around birth control and sex in 1970s America, we have to look all the way back to the late 1800s when this entire country went to hell in a handbasket. Prostitution had hit a serious growth spurt during the Civil War. Photograph technology was the best thing to happen to pornography since paper. Then there was the rising popularity of a free love movement, protesting the very concept of marriage itself. People were flaunting their sexuality with no shame or remorse. It really freaked out the squares, especially this U.S. postal inspector named Anthony Comstock. Comstock seems to me like the most uptight guy to ever live. His morals were so severe that he formed the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice in 1873 in order to, quote, supervise the morality of the public. That same year, he influenced Congress to pass the Comstock Laws, new legislation prohibiting the production, publication, or use of the Postal Service to transport any obscene materials. Oh, and he was the one who got to define what was considered obscene, since he personally enforced the laws. Here's a short list of things considered obscene by Anthony Comstock. Any and every form of sex education whatsoever. Tools or methods to prevent sexually transmitted diseases tools or methods to terminate a pregnancy, and tools or methods to prevent a pregnancy. If that sounds fine to you, consider that under Comstock's standards, medical students were no longer allowed to have anatomy textbooks sent to them since they were viewed as pornographic. I don't know about you, but I want my doctors and surgeons to have a thorough understanding of human anatomy. These laws applied to everyone. It didn't matter if you were a single person or a happily married couple trying to learn how to make a baby or keep from having one. Pieces of the Comstock laws stayed on the books in America for over 100 years into the 1990s, despite national surveys showing that as early as 1937, over 70% of the population supported use of contraception and wanted to overturn these laws. What happens when you have laws that 70% of your population disagrees with is that people break those laws. You can't throw 70% of the country in jail. One woman who broke Comstock laws as often and as publicly as possible was Margaret Sanger, the founder of what we call Planned Parenthood today. There was a, a certain satisfaction in uh, doing something that was going to alleviate the sufferings of women in particular, and I was quite a feminist at the time. Mm -hmm, obviously. And, uh, yes, and uh, uh, I naturally didn't want to see women take all the suffering of childbearing and of pregnancies. So it was a pleasure in a sense to think that you were striking uh, at an archaic law, which it was, mm -hmm. it was put on the statute books by Anthony Comstock some years ago, and uh, no one had stood up against it. No one had, had uh, tried to, uh, uh, to change the laws. And at that time, not even a doctor had a right to use the United States mails and common carriers for books, for learning, for anything that he had to do with this question. It was considered obscene. 
She published pamphlets, opened the first birth control clinic in America, and eventually convinced a wealthy philanthropist to fund the creation of the first birth control pill. Here's a brief timeline of relevant events leading up to the release of Loretta Lynn's 1975 song, The Pill. In the 1950s, Comstock laws are still on the books in 30 states. In some of those states, married women are getting hysterectomies after delivering a baby so they can continue having sex without risking pregnancy. It's the only legal form of contraception available to them. 1960. The first birth control pill is approved for contraceptive use by the FDA. 1962. There are over one million women on the pill. 1963, a pharmaceutical researcher named Bill Baird is conducting clinical research at Harlem Hospital when he witnesses the bloody death of a woman who tried to give herself an abortion with a coat hanger. This causes him to become a social advocate for reproductive rights. 1965, Griswold vs. Connecticut. The Supreme Court rules that it is an unconstitutional violation of the right to privacy for our government to prohibit married couples from using birth control. It is still illegal for single women to have the pill in 26 states due to Comstock laws. 1967, the pill is on the cover of Time magazine. Bill Baird is arrested for handing out condoms and contraceptive foam at a speech in Boston. He faces 10 years in jail. 1970, Congress removes references to contraception from federal anti-obscenity laws. 1972, Deep Throat is released, receiving more mainstream attention than any porno film ever. Bill Baird's case for his arrest in Boston makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, where the legalization of birth control is extended to all American citizens regardless of marital status. Loretta Lynn records the pill. 1973, Roe v. Wade. The Supreme Court rules that a woman's right to privacy includes the decision to have an abortion, with some caveats. Anyone who's paid any attention to American politics in the last 50 years knows that we've been arguing about Roe v. Wade since this day. 1975, Loretta Lynn's record company finally releases the pill after sitting on the recording for years everyone loses their mind. Again, Loretta Lynn's best songs are autobiographical, whether she wrote them or not. Nearly every online article I read for this episode mistakenly credits Loretta for writing the song. It's an easy mistake. We all know she writes about the events of her life. We all know she married young and started making babies right away. Still, she did not write the pill. It was written by Lorene Allen, Don McCann, and T.D. Bayliss. And Loretta was never on the pill either. She gave birth to six children before convincing her husband to have a vasectomy done. The year the song came out, she told People magazine that if the pill had been around when she was having babies, she'd have taken them like popcorn. Quote, I wouldn't trade my kids for anyone's, but I wouldn't necessarily have had six, and I sure would have spaced them better. That article in People magazine opens with the image of a preacher condemning Loretta's single to his congregation in her home state of Kentucky. A different writer published this statement in the New York Times. The new type of country song separates sex from joy, undercuts marital love and fidelity, and debases women. It creates a vision of the world as a swamp of sin. He goes on to praise the tradition of artists like Hank Williams, which is deeply contradictory if you know anything about Hank Williams. I don't know about the other songs he was listening to, but what the pill really did achieve was the exact opposite of everything that writer said. The song is not about a woman who gets a birth control prescription so she can joylessly cheat on her husband with every man in town now that she won't get knocked up. It's about a married woman telling her husband that she's now free to truly enjoy their sex life because she's in control of her body and no longer has to stifle fear or anxiety over adding another human being to their family. 
She knows he's gone out and partied some when she wasn't in the mood before, but now she's ready to throw on a miniskirt and have a good time with her husband. Yeah, it's pretty sassy and there's plenty of innuendo. She tells him he's set this chicken for the last time and her incubator is overused from him keeping it filled. Roosting time, tonight's too good to be real. Oh, but daddy, don't you worry, none, cause mama's got the pill. Oh, daddy, don't you worry, none, cause mama's got the pill. And those are the only lines in the song that could possibly be considered obscene, since merely referencing contraception hasn't been obscene since that 1970 Act of Congress. The only way those lines could be considered obscene is if being pregnant while married is obscene. That's what those lines are describing. A set chicken, a full incubator, metaphors for pregnancy, banned by 60 radio stations in the United States. 60 more than one per state in the union. All they accomplished by banning the song was to send record sales through the roof while artificially harming the single's performance on the charts. Remember, we're talking about an America where 70% of the population supports the use of contraceptives. Every time the song was publicly shamed, it's statistically accurate to say that seven of the 10 people present went out and found a way to listen to that song. Plenty of them liked what they heard, enough to buy the album. When stations were put in the position of having to play the song or lose listeners to other stations that would, the song finally rose to number five on the country charts and number 70 on the pop charts. Loretta's best performance on the pop charts to this day. So why had they banned it? It was either a knee-jerk reaction to a country song about birth control, or it was something else. And I'm about to prove it wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to a country song about birth control. In 1971, Chet Atkins produced a song by Lorene Mann with vocal accompaniment by the Jordanaires. The title of that song is Hide My Sin, and then, spelled out letter by letter in parentheses, the words Abortion New York. That's the title of the song. The Jordanaires sing out the letters to spell Abortion New York in the background, so there's no missing it. The female narrator sings the sad story of an abortion she's already had and regrets. Almost a little girl was born. Me. Or a little boy that might have looked like you. Oh. On a jet to New York State. Reckon it's the only thing to do Three hundred dollars hides my sin And I'm the one who's got to pay Out on me, that's where he went Never dreamed I'd see the song came out in 1972 on RCA Records three years before the pill. It was not banned. All the songs used for background music in this episode make reference to birth control. Every one of them came out before the pill by Loretta Lynn. Not a single one was banned from radio play in the U.S. Here's a little quick info on two of them. 1972. Harry Chapin releases Woman Child with lyrics about a groupie having an abortion that he says he isn't even certain is it his. Wasn't an early morning phone call. What news have I received? A halting voice is telling me what we both can see. Asking how the dilemma, how can it be relieved? I will. Honey, I set up a time. You got to go there on 
woman child Mama's little angel's been defied It's pretty gross, but it was not banned. 1974, Paul Anka's You're Having My Baby, widely regarded as one of the worst songs of all time, has lyrics that say he's glad a woman wants to have his baby because he knows she didn't have to keep it. He would have been cool with the abortion and it would have been all over then, but having the baby is totally awesome too. Didn't have to keep it Wouldn't put you through it You could have swept it from your life But you wouldn't do it No, you wouldn't do it And you're having a baby Not banned. A country singer named Sunday Sharp covers this song as soon as it comes out. of the song, with lyrics changed to the female perspective, went to number 11 on the country music charts in October of 1974, less than a year before Loretta Lynn's song came out. Not banned. So what the hell? The standards applied to male artists and female artists in country music are different, and they always have been. Men have to go way over the line. All women have to do is get near it. I want to take a second to remind you that this show is about country music in the 1900s, so let me be clear that I'm speaking only of major label singles intended for airplay that were banned by radio stations before the year 2000. I'm not talking about clean radio edits or songs that had curse words bleeped out for airplay. In the 1900s, female country artists had exponentially more songs banned from radio than men did. In fact, I know of just five singles by male artists banned from country radio before the year 2000, which is fewer than Loretta had banned from radio by herself. In 1931, Jimmy Rogers had the song What's It banned because the what's it in the title lives in his girlfriend's underwear. She takes a little what's it where she goes, and her what's it never grows. But when she struts right down the street, her little what's it can't be beat. But she's my gal, my dog-faced gal from Nashville, Tennessee. Webb Pierce had There Stands the Glass, banned from a few stations in 1953 for being such a blatant ode to alcoholism. There stands the glass That will ease all my pain That will settle my brain It's my first one to take stands the glass that will hide all my tears that will drown all my fears brother I'm on my way Conway Twitty's You've Never Been This Far Before would probably still make some parents shut off the stereo so it's not that surprising that it was banned by a few stations though merely a few And as I put my arms around you, I can tell you've never been this far before. Bum, bum, bum. I don't know what I'm saying, 
As my trembling fingers touch forbidden places Boom, boom, boom I only know I've waited for so long For the chance that we are taking It was on the country charts for 16 weeks and stayed at number one for three weeks. Tim McGraw had his song Indian Outlaw banned. It's essentially lyrical red face. An Indian outlaw, half Cherokee and Choctaw. My baby, she's a Chippewa. She's a one of a kind. All my friends call me Bear Claw. The village chicken is my papa. He gets his orders from my mama. She makes him walk the line. You can find me in my wigwam. I'll be beating on my tom tom. Pull out the pipe and smoke you some. Hey, and pass it around. Cause I'm an Indian outlaw. The only other pre-Y2K country song by a man that I know was banned from some radio stations was Merle Haggard's Oki from Muskogee. And that one's complicated enough to deserve its own episode down the road. The Pill wasn't banned from country radio because it was a song about birth control. It was banned because the woman in the song proudly and happily sings about the freedom birth control gives her to live her life on her terms, regardless of what men think about it. If she was ashamed to be on birth control or apologetic about being on birth control, then the song would not have been banned. If the pill had been recorded by a male artist and the gender POV changed to she's got the pill, A celebration of how much the pill has improved the marriage and the sex for him? It would not have been banned. The pill, the pill, I'm pining for the pill. I'll never have any more because they're going to bless the pill. It gave me such a terrible row, my eyes were filled with tears. How long have you been wed, says he, says I, this seven years. Says he, you'd better give over all your evil sinful tricks. You've been married seven years and you've only got the six. The pill, the pill, I'm pining for the pill. I'll never have any more because they're going to bless the pill. Female artists have their songs banned simply for standing up to society or for fighting back. Harper Valley PTA is a perfect example. There isn't anything scandalous about that song. It's about a single mother telling some people off for not minding their own business and for being hypocrites. It was banned from several radio stations. Kitty Wells, It Wasn't God Who Made Honky Tonk Angels, a song about how she's tired of married men acting like they're single and women getting blamed for it. It wasn't God who made honky tonk angels As you said in the words of your song Too many times married men think they're still single That has caused many a good girl to go wrong 
it was a direct response to Hank Thompson's hit, The Wild Side of Life, a song about cheating women, which spent 15 weeks at number one and caused zero controversy the whole time. The glamour of the gay nightlife has lured you To the places where the wine and liquor flow Where you wait to be anybody's baby And forget the truest love you'll ever know I didn't know God made honky-tonk angels I might have known you'd never make a wife You gave up the only one that ever loved you And went back to the wild side of life. Kitty's song was banned from radio. Johnny Cash can sing about shooting a man just to watch him die in 1955. When Dixie Chicks released Goodbye Earl in 1999, we can't have a song about a woman who's tried every way of escaping an abusive husband except finally killing him. Banned from radio. Their label almost wouldn't let them release it as a single, only allowing it after the girls played the song at the Grammy Awards without the world ending. I can even show you an instance of a male artist being banned for depicting a woman fighting back. The Thunder Rolls by Garth Brooks has a third verse that his producer talked him out of recording. In that third verse, the wife of the cheating husband in the song gets a gun out of a drawer and tells herself this is the last time. She runs back down the hallway and through the bedroom door. She reaches for the pistol kept in the dresser drawer. Tells the lady in the mirror he won't do this again. Cause tonight will be the last time she'll wonder where he's been. Thunder up and the lightning strike. Another love goes cold on the sleepless night as the storm blows on. Garth saved those lines for live performances of the song. And when it came time to make the music video, he decided to include that image from the third verse. The wife gets the gun and she uses it. You know what happened next, right? The day after it was released, TNN banned the video, and then CMT banned the video. I should mention that TNN said they'd put the video back in rotation if Garth filmed a disclaimer to run with it, but Garth refused. It's a good thing Loretta Lynn had the foresight to release nearly nothing but top 10 singles for a decade before the pill came out, or we may never have heard it. Here's what happened to KT Oslin. Her first single went to number 72 on the country charts in 1981. She followed it up just months later with a song called Younger Men. It was about how men her age, around 40 years old, were either uninterested or unable to run at her speed, so to speak. This was way before that other pill, Viagra. So she's decided to try out a younger guy, possibly a 19-year-old.
Now, I've never met a 19-year-old guy in charge of deciding what songs aren't allowed to be played on a radio station. I've met plenty of 40-year-old guys who are. Younger men didn't hit the country charts. It wasn't banned. Radio stations simply chose not to play it. KT's next single came out five years later and went to number 40. Her following three singles made it in the top 10 because they didn't hurt the feelings of radio programmers. In 1988, she re-recorded Younger Men and put it out as a single again. No airplay, again. No charts, again. Her following single broke the top 20 and the three after that all hit top five. I could do this all day, but I think I've proven my point. If you were a woman making country music in the 20th century, then you'd better have some serious momentum built up before taking the car off road or you were liable to get stuck. Loretta Lynn may tell you she's had as many as 14 songs banned from radio stations. As far as I can tell, the real number is closer to nine. Some of the women mentioned in this episode were victims of an unfair system. Loretta Lynn was not one of them. Her aw shucks hillbilly personality is authentic, but there's a deeply perceptive person behind it. She knew exactly what she was doing. Maybe not the first time it happened, but certainly the next time and the one after that, and so on. Revisit the timeline from earlier. Loretta recorded the pill in 1972, the year the Supreme Court made the birth control pill legal for all American citizens. The record company held her back for three years, but Loretta was trying to push the envelope even earlier than she did. And don't come home a-drinking with lovin' on your mind. No, don't come home a-drinking with lovin' on your mind. Just stay out there on the town and see what you can find. Cause if you want that The lyrics Loretta wrote for Don't Come Home Drinkin' with Lovin' on Your Mind ruffled some feathers. For the first time in her career, a song she'd written herself was being treated as scandalous. And for the first time in her career, she had a number one hit single. She'd already started recording her next album four months before Don't Come Home Drinkin' was a hit. So skip that one, and the next Loretta Lynn album you have with singles released from it is a record called Fist City. The title track was banned, and it was her second number one single. If you don't wanna go to Fish City, you better detour around my town. Cause I'll grab you by the hair of the head, and I'll lift you off of the ground. I'm not a saying my baby's a saint, cause he ain't in that he won't pat around with a kitty. It's an easy pattern to spot, and it's held up over her entire career. Come on and tell me what you told my friends if you think you're brave enough. And I'll show you what a real woman is since you think you're hot stuff. You'll bite off more than you can chew if you get too cute or witty. You better move your feet if you don't want to eat a meal that's coffee. Once she became a big enough star that the public response and the industry response to her new albums was newsworthy, Loretta Lynn was able to consistently exploit the Streisand effect to her benefit before we even had a name for it. Years later, Loretta would joke that she could always tell how well her songs were doing by looking at how many radio stations had banned them. Thank you for listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones. Every episode of the podcast is written and produced by me, Tyler Mayhan Co. 
I know we're just getting started and you may not know what you really think about this show yet, but try to stick with me because I'm teaching myself how to do all of this as I go. If you are enjoying it at all, then I'll ask again that you share it with one person. Even better if you talk about it with them in real life. Talk about these stories and this music. If you're listening to this before November 9th, then I shouldn't be in iTunes or Stitcher yet, but you can go ahead to cocaineandrhinestones.com to subscribe to new episodes by email. If you are listening to this later on iTunes or Stitcher, then please leave me a good review. I'm told that it helps a lot and I need all the help I can get. And thank you very much. As always, there's a companion blog post for this episode on the site with links to all the music I talked about, any video clips mentioned, the books and articles I read for the episode. It's all at cocaineandrhinestones.com. You should be able to just Google cocaine and rhinestones and I can't imagine anything else would even come up. So yeah, should be pretty easy to find. Next week, I'm telling a story that Well, it may have legitimately traumatized me. I guess only time will tell. It could be the darkest stain on the history of country music. Of course, I'm talking about Spade Cooley's dominance of the California country music scene and the horrific way it ended with the brutal torture and murder of his wife. I've seen many people get this story wrong over the years, and I didn't know how wrong... It was until I looked into it for myself, and it's tough. I mean, there's just no way around it. It's it's very difficult to listen to. Uh, yeah, make sure you catch that one so you can have nightmares for three weeks like I did. But um, I don't listen to the murder podcast. I guess if you like those, then maybe you will like this episode. I find it pretty rough going. Okay, liner notes. I'm honestly pretty nervous about putting this episode out into the world, but this entire podcast would be bullshit if I didn't, so I kind of feel like I have to. It is fascinating, but in a way, it's like a car wreck, you know? You're you're gonna look. You have to look. You can't not look. Only this car wreck, it's like if you were driving and the entire road trip from Nashville to Los Angeles, there was just one long car crash on the side of the interstate the entire time. I expect country music fans are already aware of the problems women artists face in a general way, although maybe not aware of how extreme a problem it really is. I guess what I'm worried about here is that I very much intend this show to be appealing to people who are not already fans of the genre. I think these stories and this history will be fascinating to people who may even currently believe that they hate country music. Uh, So in today's political climate, where everything has to be political, whether it's meant that way or not, even just sitting down and listing some facts, which I feel is pretty much all I've done here, I could see some outsiders with an agenda having a knee-jerk reaction, saying I'm blowing things out of proportion, or even making shit up. Uh, I mean, I wish I was, you know. It brings me no pleasure to document this massive shortcoming of a type of music that I love. But, I mean, listen, I'm not trying to position myself as the be-all, end-all authority on country music history. Please go look up anything you believe I may have gotten wrong. If I did get something wrong, feel free to let me know. If you have a good source for your information, it's not just some story your grandpa told you. I'll even update the episode with correct information. That goes for every episode. My aim here is to tell the truth. I love country music. I want to talk about it. I want the conversation to stay honest. Sometimes that's going to be uncomfortable for me and for you. So deal with it, you know? Let's see. I probably don't pronounce caveat the right way if there's a specific way you're supposed to pronounce that in the legal sense, whatever. I know for a fact that I misspoke in the episode regarding the Katie Oslin single. She re-recorded Younger Men in 1987, and it was re-released as a single in 1988. I said in the episode that uh, she re-recorded it in 1988. It was not worth going back and re-recording a bunch of stuff, so I'm telling you now. Everything else I said about it was accurate, though. I also forgot to mention that the album it came out on the second time around won a Grammy Award. 
So that's even more damning, I feel. Seriously, just go look at Katie Oslin's discography page on Wikipedia. Scroll down to the section on her singles. There's just a hole right there in the middle of all these hits, arguably the height of her career. And there's one song there that didn't get any airplay for some strange reason. Hmm. I wonder how many of the radio programmers who kept her song off playlist couldn't get it up anymore. Anyway. By the way, I was not talking shit on Hank Williams Sr. I love Hank and his music. His biography is so fascinating to me that I'm intimidated by the thought of discussing him on this show. I'm just saying it's super out of touch for anyone to hold up Hank as the pinnacle of morality as that writer seemed to be doing for some weird reason. I obviously recommend that everyone read Coal Miner's Daughter if you want to know more about Loretta Lynn. A lot of country singer autobiographies are full of shit, but hers seems mostly legit. I should warn you that Loretta's wedding night is a straight-up rape scene. It's still messed up in the book, even though it's sort of glossed over, but seeing it in the movie is unsettling, to say the least. Uh, I would say it didn't age well, but it's just history, you know? Uh, history has not aged well. The Margaret Sanger clip was taken from an interview with Mike Wallace, which I'm aware is a controversial interview for a lot of people for many different reasons. You can watch the whole interview on the website, and you can even get yourself into an argument in the YouTube comments if you want. I don't feel a need to give an opinion on it. Uh, I don't really know what happened. I wasn't there. Uh, nothing about this episode was about shoving political ideas at anyone, you know. It would have been ridiculous to try and talk about why Loretta Lynn's song, The Pill, could have been banned without talking about the history of birth control in America. Margaret Sanger was a part of that history. I had a clip of her saying exactly what I was saying about her in her own words, with her own voice. I used it. Of course I used it. I read several things to build the timeline of birth control in America. They'll all be linked in this episode's blog post on the website, but the one that I would recommend as an actual good read is America and the Pill by Elaine Tyler May. If I said anything remotely fresh or insightful on the subject, which I probably did not, I'm sure it was inspired by her book. So if you thought any of that was interesting, you should read her book. All right, here's the area where it's most likely that you think I said something completely wrong, talking about men being banned from country radio. Listen, like I said, if you find a reputable source to add something to the list, feel free to get in touch. Make sure you check your date. Gotta be before the year 2000. I don't want to hear about your local radio station banning a song. Anyone can start a radio station in the middle of nowhere and ban whatever they want. I need legit stations. There's got to be more than one of them. I'm not saying I missed any songs. I don't think that I did, but I don't think it's at all possible that I did miss enough songs to balance the scales here. I didn't even come close to mentioning all the songs banned by women in country music. This episode would have been two hours long. I'll also point out that I was very lenient with my sources regarding those five songs being banned. It's hard to research this topic now because after 9-11, Clear Channel banned a bunch of random songs, and that's mostly what comes up when you try to search for banned music now. Give you an idea, there was some random little book called The Rough Guide to Cult Pop. It had one sentence about Webb Pierce being banned, so I put that in this episode. Then I found the same thing about Webb in uh, a better book called Taboo Tunes was a more thorough look at the topic. That's where I got Jimmy Rogers from. There weren't any other male country acts in that whole book dedicated to this very subject. So yeah, <laughs> come at me. Uh, I would love to get a look at the disclaimer. TNN asked Garth Brooks to film for that music video. What horseshit. Uh, <laughs> can't believe these people. Anyway, Patsy Bale Cox wrote a biography of Garth called The Garth Factor. Patsy is a great writer. She's done several biographies that I'll be using for future episodes. She always goes deep. If there's a situation where there's more than one side of a story, it looks like she tries to include all the different sides. See if she's written a book on someone you like. I'm sure it's good. 
Her book actually has some information on this. Uh, apparently, Garth went to TNN to read the script that they wrote for him. And it was one of those things like, hi, I'm Garth Brooks. What you've just seen, though very sad, is very real. Unfortunately, domestic violence is very much alive in our society. And the script goes on to tell men, women, and children if you're involved in domestic violence situations to seek help. Apparently, Garth felt like it was wrong. It felt like he was getting exposure by exploiting a controversy, which was not his intention. And I mean, yeah, come on. Like, this is garbage. Making an artist turn what they wanted. I mean, this is the dude who did Chris Gaines, by the way. Like, we can we remember that? Maybe you, you don't understand what he's doing, but this guy clearly put some thought into what he wants to do. Like, he's trying to say what he wants to say. If he wants to make a commercial, he'll make a commercial. This is not the kind of guy that you're going to get to read your disclaimer and let you off the hook for showing his music video. It's just, yeah, ridiculous. Uh, this is not in Patsy's book, but one time Garth Brooks and Loretta Lynn were both at a White House dinner. Loretta asked the wait staff what this fancy looking little piece of flat bread was supposed to be, and they told her it was a biscuit. So Loretta sent instructions back to the kitchen on how to make a good biscuit, like a proper biscuit. Uh, Garth Brooks tells that story. All right, that's it. Um, there are links to everything else on the website. You have no idea how much it means to me that you even wanted to listen to this. I'm really surprised by how many people are interested in a country music podcast, you know, but I'm glad that it does seem to be working so far. So thank you, and I'll be back in a week. I'm simply wild about my good cocaine. I lost the babies in the cradle in New Orleans. The doctor kept a whip until the baby got me. Doctor whip until the baby got soaked. Mama said you couldn't smell no more. Lord, go, doctor, ring the bell, the women in the alley. I'm simply wild about my good cocaine I'm simply wild about my good cocaine